All right. Good morning, church. How are you? You look well. That's good. That's a good sign. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and grab those and turn with me to Psalm 14 and 15 this morning. We're going to try to cover two psalms. That's my goal is two psalms, two points in a timely manner. So that's my goal this morning. We'll see if I can accomplish it. So if you have your Bibles there, if you don't, there should be a black hardback ESV somewhere near you. If you grab that and you want to just cut it right down the middle, you should be really close to Psalm uh, 14 and 15. Uh, let me remind you today, uh, as soon as we're finished with service, we will do a five-minute intermission, uh, and then we'll hold our annual uh, business meeting where we approve the budget for the new year. And so I encourage you, if you're a member, to just hang out. You know, you can use that five minutes however you need. If you're a guest with us, we're super excited that you're here with us, but we will not put you through that. Uh, we'll let you sneak out if you'd like. Uh, but if you want to hang out and see what we do, you're more than welcome. No, uh, no hidden things here. And so uh, we'll, let me just remind you of that. There will be a five-minute intermission, and then we'll come right back in here and and uh, try to do that in a timely manner as well because it's almost chicken time, right? It's almost chicken time. Uh, next week we'll do the same thing, uh, but it will be for parents of children and youth, a really quick uh, meeting that's a next-gen preview, and the reason you want to stay for that is you'll get all the dates for all the children's ministry stuff and all the youth ministry stuff, and you'll find out how much all that's going to cost you, and so it's uh, time to plan for, uh, for this year. All right, Psalm 14 and 15. There's two points the undeniable depravity of man and the undeniable demand of righteousness. And these two things are covered in these two uh, psalms. And uh, as you get there, you'll see the first two words are uplifting. You, the fool, right? The fool. So starts off with a strong note. David starts off with the fool. Now, when I say the fool, you might have a different uh, thought that pops in your head. Hopefully, you're not pointing fingers or showing pictures of anybody like this guy's a fool. Uh, but we all have this idea of what a fool is. And one of the stories I read this week was uh, in regards to John Wesley, uh, one of the founders of the Methodist Church. John Wesley, he was walking down the street, and as he was walking down the street, a man jumped out in front of him and just kind of stopped him and like stood there in his, in his path and said, I never get out of the way for a fool. And John Wesley stopped and looked at him and said, well, I do, and stepped around him and went right around. So um, I, I think that was a clever way of handling that. So as we get into this Psalm 14, we're going we're gonna to see what the Bible says is the fool. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into God's word. Gracious Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for how you speak to us through it. Lord, we would ask that you would reveal in our hearts the areas that have wandered from you, areas of our life that we have said no to you in, and that you would um, draw us to repentance. So Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for uh, the Psalms that we're about to read. And we thank you for this church and God, we ask your blessing on it as we enter into a new year. In Christ's name, amen. All right, number one, this, the wisdom and worship recognizes the undeniable depravity of man. So let's read here all of 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there is any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for the Lord is with the generation of the righteous. 
You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. This is God's word. Let's stop right there. What we see here is, number one, the depravity of man lives as if there is no God for them. There's just a lifestyle of, no, no God for me. So verse one, he says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. It's a pretty uplifting verse for uh, this year, right? Let's just go ahead and memorize it and uh, put it on our, our car dash, right? Like, we'll just read it over and over and over. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The word fool here is the word in the Hebrew, nabal, which is a word that implies aggressive perversity or suggests that a person has uh, a moral problem in their heart rather than an intellectual problem in their head. So the fool can actually be really intelligent. It can be someone who has a great understanding of things. They, they've learned the world and they know how to maneuver the world very well. And in fact, a lot of the most intellectual people in this world will say there is no God. And they'll show it by their lifestyle. But the word here is not necessarily an intellectual problem. It's more of a moral issue. So Steve Lawson says, the fool is one who spurns the clear evidence that is set before him concerning the reality of God and makes a fundamental decision of unbelief based upon the evidence that is presented to him. There is, by this fool, a deliberate and intentional rejection and refusal of God himself. The heart, he refers to the, to the entire inner person. It's not heart as the Greeks think of heart, which is simply more affections, but the Hebrew mind, the heart, represented the entire inner life, the mind, the emotion, the conscience, the will, the entire inner being of a person. So what the psalm here, what David is saying is that there's a person out there who's a fool because in their heart they say, no, no God for me. I, I, I don't want to live as if there's a God. This is foolishness. So foolishness is not an intellectual denouncing of God as much as it is a moral denouncing of God. The fool morally rejects that there is a God who is Lord and sovereign. Rejects the fact because they don't want to submit themselves to God. James Montgomery Boyce says the reason the person is a fool is not merely mistaken, uh, and not merely mistaken is that he knows there is a God, yet chooses to believe and act as if there is none. Just choosing to believe and act as if there's no God. The fool. Christ entered expositional commentary says it this way, the card-carrying atheist and the practical atheist are motivated by the same desire. I don't want to serve a God. I want to serve myself. A fool in his heart would say, I don't want to serve God. I want to serve myself. It's not an intellectual denouncing of God. It's more of a moral denouncing of God. Of, There's no God for me. I want to live as if I want to live however I please. We live in a world today where the culture is saying, no, God. No God for me. I want to be the one who chooses my own path. I want to say what I am to other people. This is how I want to identify myself. And so we live in a culture that has foolishly rejected God. There's a total depravity that is, that is evident in the way that we say, no God, no God. They are corrupt and they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. There's a clear cause and effect to saying no God. 
In fact, in the original writing here, there is was added so that it would read better. So really it just reads, the fool has said in his heart, no God, no. You know, it's, it's like that for the practical atheist. The practical atheist knows that there's God, but practically lives as if there is no God. And so what they've done is they've taken sections of their heart and said, no, God, you can't have, you can't have dominion over this part of my life. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take this area and I'm going to say, no, no God for me here. I want to choose how I want to live in this area, but you can have this area of my life and this area of my life and this area of my life. And so it's really the fool who says, no, no God, not today. Have there been areas of your life where you've just said no to God? I want all the other good things, God, but no, no to this area. Because if you say in your heart, no God, the effect in your life is corrupt, immoral living. What happens is if you get to a point where you say no God in one area of your life or one area of your heart, what is eventually going to happen is that you will say no to God in multiple areas of your heart, in multiple areas of your life, and it will begin to compound on one another until your life is living in a corrupt fashion in immoral living. And we see this often with those who fall away from God, fall away from the church, is that they at one point just said, you know what, in this area of my life, no, I think I'll make the decisions. I know what God's word says, but no, I think this is right for me. And before too long, that area spills over into another area, into another area. And so what David says here in the very first verse is, the fool, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And there's an effect that takes place. Paul would say this in Romans. Romans chapter 1, 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they... Are without excuse. Intellectually, let me stop right there. Intellectually, it's obvious that there's a God because there's a world of order. Everything is being held together. Everything is functioning the way that it needs to function for life to be sustained on planet Earth. And yet, there are some who say, no, God. For although they knew God, verse 21, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became what? Fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. There is a cause and effect that takes place when we say, no, God. And the cause is, if you say no, God, the effect will be immoral living because you will be handed over to a debased mind, to suppressing the truth and to a foolish heart that will lead you into an area of immorality. The Puritan Stephen Charnock said it this way, actions are a greater discovery of a principle than words. The frame of a man's heart must be measured rather by what they do than by what they say. Let me put this in easier language. Our actions reveal what we really believe in our hearts. 
You see, we can say we believe God. We can claim an intellectual understanding of who God is, but if our lives say no God, it really reveals the heart. It really reveals whether or not we truly have surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ because we want him to be Lord of our life. So the depravity of man lives as if there is no God. B, the depravity of man is not hidden from God. So it gets better, right? Verse two, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Second Chronicles 16, nine says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Psalm 33, 13 through 15. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashioned the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Hebrews 4, 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So the fool would say in his heart, there is no God. His ways would become corrupt because of this, this thought process that he has, this moral rejection of God. And nothing that he says, nothing that he does, nothing that he thinks is hidden from a God who sees all that one day we will have to stand before and give an account. Wow. So nothing is hidden. It says, he looks down to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. Paul would answer this in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12. As is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Wow. So God is looking down, nothing's hidden from God, and he's looking to see if anyone understands, if anyone seeks God, and here's the answer, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, no, not one. Total depravity. The fact that when sin entered the world in, in Genesis with Adam, when it entered the world, we were all infected with sin. We were all infected with this part of us that has been marred. We were designed to be image bearers of the God of the universe, and yet we marred that with sin. And so now we all carry this where we are incapable of understanding, of reflecting his glory the way that we should. The none seek after him. So what are we to do? If no one seeks and no one understands, what are we to do? Jesus John 6, 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Even as we are like two verses in here, we see that, the, that we are hopeless and we are helpless and that we need to be drawn back into a right relationship through Jesus Christ. Thomas Aquinas says this, the reason we think people are seeking after God when they are not is that they are desperately and earnestly seeking for those things that only God can give them. Happiness, meaning, freedom from guilt, peace. They're not seeking after God. They want the benefits of God without God. Wow. No one understands. No one seeks God. We may seek the benefits of God, but are we truly seeking God as God? Sometimes we want to use God 
for our own selfish desires. We, we say we're seeking after God, but really we're just seeking after blessings. But Jesus Christ draws us, lures us, brings us back into a right relationship. As R.C. Sproul says, the imagery of Scripture in the unbeliever's case is not that he is seeking, but he is fleeing. The fallen man is a fugitive. He's not seeking after God. The most detailed description of this is right after the fall. In Genesis 3, 8, and 9, after Adam and Eve sinned, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking, of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? If all things are seen and nothing is hidden, did you think that he was really asking, where are you? He knew exactly where they were hiding. He knew that they had tried to cover themselves with leaves that was not going to work. They were shameful. They were hiding. They were marred by sin. They were not seeking after God for grace and mercy, but guess what? God was seeking after them. He was on a pursuit to restore what had been broken. Because he looks and no one understands. No one seeks God, but God seeks to make us right with him through his son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture? It's beautiful. Where are you? See, the depravity of man is incapable of doing good to outweigh the bad. So the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And, and then... Everything that he does and says is clearly seen by God who sits on the throne. And he can't do enough good to outweigh the bad. Verse 3. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God is what Paul would say. Isaiah would get a little more detailed, a little more graphic in the way that he would say that our Goodness is not ever going to be good enough when he says we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. If you studied this, you know that the polluted garments, the filthy rags would be um, a term re referring to the minstrel rags that are used. Your best effort, your good your good deeds, everything that you can do, I'm going to make up for it. I know that, I, I know that I'm a bad person. I'm going, to try my really, I'm going to try my best. I'm going to treat people this way, and I'm going to act this way. I'm not going to cuss. I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to chew, and I'm not going to date girls who do. Okay, like I'm going to do all of these things. Filthy rags. Filthy rags. Paul would say in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, he comes looking for us in the garden. We're hiding. We're refugees. We're, we're, we're at odds against him, and we're not seeking him but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love from which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Woo, it is not your works. 
because you cannot do enough good to outweigh the bad. Amen? There's a God who saves. There's a God who seeks those who are lost, those who have been separated from his presence. We are eternally grateful. And yet there's an idea that we think we can be good enough. Martin Luther said it this way, the most damnable and pernicious heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man is that somehow he can make himself good enough to deserve to live forever with an all-holy God. To think that your good deeds could outweigh your bad deeds enough that you could live in the presence of an all-holy God. As John Piper says, the essence of sin is minimizing God and making much of self. I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. I don't do what they do. They're fools. I'm not a fool. That's hypothetical speaking. I wasn't thinking of anybody or looking at anybody when I said that. In fact, Paul would say in Romans 7, 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. There is nothing good in me apart from Jesus Christ and him alone. I say this, and, and you look at me, and you, you nod your head, you, you follow me, you agree with me. But what's interesting is that a research once uh, that was done in the last year with Arizona Christian University said that 48% of U.S. adults affirm this statement. This is half of the adult population of those surveyed, all right? A person who is generally good does or does enough good things for others will earn a place in heaven. Pretty much one out of two adults believe that. If I just do enough good, I can, I can live with a holy God. That's absurd. Well, look at, this, look at this survey. Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary shows that out of the incoming freshmen surveyed, 78% think that all people are basically good. Have you read Psalm 14? These are people going into seminary. Not only that, they think that 54%, not only 54% believe that faith in Jesus is necessary for salvation. Only 54% believe that being in Christ is necessary for salvation. I would say these are the kids who are raised in Christian homes. These are the kids who you dragged to church on Sunday, that you bribed with a steak for lunch. If you go to church with me, I'll buy you a steak. That's what my mom did, right? It's a depraved mind who thinks that I can be good enough to live with an all-holy God on my own. So where are we? Here we are. Our natural fallen state has a foolish attitude of the heart. It says, no, God. I think I can govern myself. Our lives, our hearts, our thoughts, and our actions are seen and not hidden from the Holy God. Our good deeds are filthy rags that will never be enough to outweigh our sinfulness. Wow, it's piling up here. So our only hope is a salvation from outside of ourselves. Our only hope is a salvation outside of ourselves. So D, the depravity of man is hopelessly lost and must be found, rescued, and restored. Let's finish out this chapter. Have they no knowledge? 
all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord, there they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. So if no one does good and no one seeks God, then salvation must come from God, the one who is good and the one who seeks us. That's our only hope. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Well, it's good news. Luke 15, 4 through 7. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need repentance. Jesus came to seek, to save, to restore what was broken, to find those who are hiding, because no one understands, no one seeks God, no one does good. So salvation has to come from outside of ourselves. So if no one does good and no one seeks God, then salvation must come from God the one who is good, the one who does seek. 1 Timothy 1.15, the trustworthy saying, deserving a full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Are you a sinner? Are you a sinner? Are you hopelessly lost without him? You can't do enough good, can you? You'll always be in the debt. So salvation had to come from the one who seeks us. And it came in the Son, Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, my prayer today is that you would no longer walk as the fool, that you would no longer say no God in certain areas of your life, but that you would find repentance. And there would be much rejoicing because one sinner has come home. Amen? So let's look at Psalm 15. Wisdom and worship realizes the undeniable demand of righteousness. Let's read, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved." This is God's word. Psalm 15 points us to the undeniable demand of righteousness. All scripture, in fact, points us to the undeniable demand of righteousness that can only be found in Christ. 
All of scripture is pointing us to the fact that we are hopelessly and helplessly lost, that the law, we are incapable of attaining this. So there has to be one who is righteous, who is found right before God. Luke 24, 44. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. I got, I got some great news for you. The righteous demand that all of Scripture points to has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You, you don't have to worry about having enough good works because the demand has been met. From every text of Scripture, there is a road to Christ, is what Spurgeon says. As we read this, we read that Jesus Christ fulfilled the righteous demand for us to be in the presence of God. So Psalm 15 and all of scripture is fulfilled in Christ, but it also has an application for the person who lives in Christ. Okay, so there is a fulfillment and an application. So though this is fulfilled in Christ, there is still an application for us who are in Christ, in his righteousness. Warren Wearsby would say Psalm 15 is not a prescription for being saved, but a description of how saved people ought to live if they want to please God in fellowship with him. So let's look at these real quick. Verse one, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? This is, who can be in the presence of God? Here's the question. Who has the right to live in the presence of God? Who has the right? Who's lived a good enough life that they can stand before a holy, holy, holy God and say, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I looked in the mirror. Our fellowship with God has been broken by sin. We've just read none is righteous. No one sees God. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Then who? Who can enter back into his presence? As Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, it's likely that he was referencing Psalm 15. As he was saying, you've heard it said, but I would tell you this. You've heard it said, but I'll tell you this. This is the righteous demand for those who want to be in the presence of God. And so in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, he says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not in iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus is saying, look, you can be really right. right. You can follow all the right laws, you can do all the right religious things, but unless your righteousness exceeds that of these scribes and Pharisees, you will never be able to ascend the hill to be back into the presence. He came to fulfill it. So the righteous requirement for entering back into the presence of a holy God is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Here's our only hope, to be found in him, as Paul would say. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Who can ascend the hill? Those who are found in Christ. 
because he has fulfilled the righteous demand. Those who have put their heart and life into his care, I am completely yours. I am completely submitting my life to your lordship. I am repenting of my sins and I am turning from them and I want to follow you. I want you to sanctify me and lead me to glorification one day so that I can ascend into your presence. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, his righteousness, to be found in him, his righteousness results a, in a blameless character. This is the application. A righteous conduct and a truthful conversation. Verse 2, he who walks blameless and does what is right speaks truth in his heart. He has given us an example. Jesus Christ has lived and given us an example, but he also lives in and through us. Peter would say it this way in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. There's the application of righteousness. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He has left us an example. His righteousness fulfills, and now there's an application for the life of the believer that we would die to sin and that we would live for his righteousness, that he would live in and through us. And part of that is a blameless character. Not that we're sinless. We can't achieve sinlessness on this side of heaven, but we can walk with integrity. We can be the same person in a non-hypocritical way. We can submit ourselves to a righteous and holy king. We can have a righteous conduct. I said a long time ago, and it was, I was reminded this week, that I said it's better to be righteous than right. You can win a lot of arguments and be right. You can do a lot of religious things and be right, especially in your own eyes. I'm not doing what they're doing. But to be righteous, to have the character, the spirit of Christ living in and through you because there is no righteousness apart from him. And to have truthful conversations. To be someone who uses their words not for dishonest gain, but for building up others. You see, there's a mystery hidden for the ages, hidden for generations, but now revealed to us the saints. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. B, his righteousness results in a life that doesn't slander others or do evil to a neighbor or bring reproach on a person by destroying their reputation. So righteousness lived in and through us doesn't slander others. It doesn't do evil to a neighbor. It doesn't bring reproach on others by destroying their reputation. Verse 3 who does not slander with his tongue and does, not, does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend. As Paul would say in Ephesians and in Galatians, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Can I tell you that righteousness in the life of a believer is not just their actions, but their words. 
And so many of us are really good at trying to control and manage our actions so that we look right, that we forget that there is a righteousness that wants to speak out of our lives into the hearts of others. That we would, we would conduct our conversations in a way that build others up, strengthen the church, lead people into a right relationship. Galatians, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Writing to the church is saying, listen, you're to love your neighbor but if you continue to talk about one another, if you continue to bite and devour one another, you're basically spiritual cannibals and you're eating one another and destroying one another. So we're to love our neighbors. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbors ourselves. It'd be nice if we could sum it up that way, wouldn't it? Let me just sum it up in two ways. Righteousness, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Check, check. Sounds easy enough. But in Luke, it's the religious people who have a problem with it. Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself and he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, you will live. It's easy enough. But, verse 29, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw that he had passed, he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, he bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of them, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you, go and do likewise. You, allow this righteousness of Christ to live out of you. You love your neighbor don't walk on the other side of the street and pretend that they're not there following religious rules, but long for righteousness. You see, we were all robbed, beaten, and left half dead. We actually were left dead in our trespasses and sins on the side of the road. And religion walks by on the other side. But Christ came to seek and to save the lost, to save those who have been beaten and bruised and tormented by sin. He comes and he wraps us up in his righteousness and he pays the penalty. He takes care of us and when he returns, he will make sure that it is all paid in full, right? So see, the last thing I want you to see, his righteousness results in a life that despises evil and lives to honor and fear, and lives in honor and fear of the Lord. 
in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is a person who fears the Lord. Righteousness lived in and through the life of a believer is someone who loves God more than they love sin. As Paul Tripp says, this person, I want you to get this, this person is so deep in his moral allegiance to God that he is reviled, revolted, and turned away by sin as much as his Lord is. Sin is not attractive to him. It's not seductive. It's not magnetic. He wants to be with people who are, more, who are moral because he loves to call the call of God to righteousness. Maybe we are all too willing to expose ourselves to some form of fairly continuous diet of things that are dangerous and polluted, that dull your moral sensitivity, that are presented in ways that are seductive and attractive, wrapped in a gripping drama or in an attractive song, but that take your mind places that your mind shouldn't go. I would ask you this month, did you find entertaining something that God says is evil? Wow. You know, a fool, a fool says in their heart, no, God, and I, I don't want to be legalistic at all here, but for us to live as if we can say, no, God, I can control this area of my life, and allow ourselves to feed on the things of this world that are wrapped in a nice little package that are leading us away from righteousness is foolish. It's not wisdom. And it's certainly not worship. Worship of God, anyways. It's worship of the things of this world. It's, it's worshiping the creator, the, the creature over the creator. So this is a person who is absolutely longing to be faithful to the word of God. This is a person who is trustworthy. He's upright. He won't take a bribe, even if it causes his own pain. This is a person who lives a life of righteousness. This is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ absolutely had the purest of hearts. He never said or did anything outside of God's truth. He was the word of God. Jesus loved his neighbor in a way that we could never imagine because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, showing us his love for us. Jesus was unshakably committed to the will of God so much that when he prayed in the garden, he was sweating drops of blood and he said, not my will, but your will be done. He couldn't be bribed because even when Satan came and tempted him and took him and showed him all the kingdoms and said, I'll give them to you if you bow down, he could not be tempted enough to turn away from the righteousness of God. You see, we all have sinned. And we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Each and every one of us, none of us seek God. Sometimes we seek the benefits of God because we want the blessings of God. But God seeks us so much that he would send his son to live the righteous life that we are incapable of living so that we could be found in him and one day ascend the hill to his presence. What a beautiful picture of the gospel that you don't have to be good enough. You just have to simply surrender your life to him in repentance because he is worthy. This is the life of wisdom and worship. 
It's a life that recognizes the undeniable depravity of man, even in yourself, and the undeniable righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ that is applied to the believer. Because no one does good. No one seeks God. Therefore, Christ seeks us, draws us to surrender to him and to receive his righteousness so that we will live in and through, he will live in and through us, the life that we're incapable of living. I ask you today to ponder that for a minute, to think about your life, to think about the things that you allow yourself to digest on a weekly basis that would lead away from righteousness. And I would encourage all of us, I don't care if we've been in church 30 minutes, 30 years, or however much longer you've been, right? To repent. To realize that there's nothing good in me apart from Jesus Christ. And so maybe your prayer today is, I need more of you because I see how often I fail because I'm depraved. I'm lost and I'm hopeless and I'm hiding in the garden trying to sow fig leaves on myself to look better and it's just not working. Will you pray? Will you respond today? Gracious Lord, we come to you. We are so grateful, so thankful that you would call us to repentance, that you would seek us out when we are lost, that you would draw us to yourself. Father, I pray today that we would all respond in humility and in repentance, and that we would seek a righteousness that is outside of our own ability because it's only found in you and your son, Jesus Christ. Father, today, if someone doesn't know you, I would pray that today they would surrender themselves to you in prayer. They would pray a simple prayer repenting of sin and asking you to be Lord of their life. Father, we come to you. We thank you for your provision in Christ's name. Amen. Will you stand? Will you respond?